Well, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, get your tennis shoes on. we got a lot to do. All right, so find your place there. And uh, I, I, I didn't, you know, we finished up our series last week. And again, uh, uh, I thought Ian did a really good job of challenging us in this matter of worship and bringing God glory. Uh, let me say again, thank you for, for your recognition of Pastor's Appreciation Month. I look forward to to reading your cards and notes uh, this afternoon. Uh, but at M- Monday I was thinking, okay, where do where do we go next? And I was just kind of uh, trying to spend a little time with the Lord and working through some stuff and just kind of in my devotional life, working through a little prayer list, and I was kind of working through the names of God and got to talking about the sovereignty of God. And that that's kind of where I landed. Uh, uh, that's just kind of the backstory of how we got to today's message. And so let me just kind of jump in and we'll see how far we can get. There's probably, at least in my lifetime, there's never been a national election in these United States that that featured as much anger, dismay, frustration, lack of qualification, disgust, vitriol, deceit, dishonesty, in any number of other words you choose to describe the travesty that we call the presidential election. It's, uh, in many respects, I think it's embarrassing. It's sad that we are here as a nation. Whatever else it has done, it has caused a lot of people to wonder uh, what we will wake up to on November the 9th. For many, there is an actual fear of what might happen if the right person and the right party doesn't win. And I know there's a great debate on uh, what that right person and right party is. Um, but, but there's this fear, nonetheless. There, there's this, this angst. There's a sense, at least, you know, as I, you know, and I've kind of experienced this, and God's kind of worked in my heart and kind of, I, I think, begin to move me on uh, from that. But there's this sense that if we don't get the, the political arena right, uh, that our world is going to come apart. Uh, after all, I mean, think about what's at stake uh, in this election. There, there's always the issue of the economy, and there's always the issue uh, of national defense, and, and there's the issue of, of immigration, and then there's this, this stuff with the racial tension and the homeland security and all the things that's going on within our borders. There's the secular humanistic agenda that champions abortion on demand and any number of causes uh, sponsored by the, the LGBTQ and, and their uh, agenda. There's terrorism at home. There's terrorism at abroad. Uh, there's the issue of religious freedom and judicial appointments. And there's so many other hot-button issues, and I haven't covered them all, but, but, but I've covered some that, that are near and dear to some of you and, and some that are near and dear to others. But, but, but with all of these, there, it just seems like there's this... This angst, this, this real fear, this anxiousness in many, even in those of us who follow Jesus Christ. And the tendency for us and the danger for us is that we, as the people of God, that we adopt this, this idea 
that if things don't go our way, whatever our way is, but if things don't go our way, then the sky is falling and we're in trouble. And for many of us, that's kind of where we've been. And my question is, and here's what I want to know, is God in heaven wringing his hands and hoping that we get this thing right. I mean, can you just imagine God going, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, Jesus, if, if America doesn't vote right, what are we going to do? Can you imagine? And yet, for many of us, we are, we are steeped in this fear, in this worry, that if it doesn't go this way in Washington or it doesn't go this way in Austin or it doesn't go this way in Wimberley or this way in San Marcos or if this doesn't pass or if that doesn't happen, then man, what are we going to do? I mean, I mean, is God afraid? Is God afraid of what might happen in a couple of weeks? Is God afraid of what might happen next Year is, is God afraid of what's going to happen in the future? Is God just worried, hey man, America, you got to get this right? No. As a matter of fact, here, listen, listen to what the, the scripture says. Let me just read a couple verses. This should just encourage your heart. Uh, Psalm 115, verse 1, down through verse 3. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory or give glory for the sake of your Steadfast love. What kind of love does God have? Steadfast. For the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God, my God, is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says this. The king's heart, insert president or senator or whoever you want to insert. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I can assure us of at least one thing. On Wednesday, November 9th, When you wake up, God is still on his throne. And he is still. He is still orchestrating his plan for the ages and he has one. God always, always orchestrates his plan. He always works for his good. He always works for his glory. And when it comes to your life and my life, in our church, in our community, in our country, in our world, God is always working His plan. Always. You see, there was a time in history when taxes were really high. There was a time when government was really tyrannical. There was a time when godlessness and neo-paganism pervaded the culture It it even pervaded the religious establishment. It was the normal. It was expected behavior. There there was a time when religious freedom 
uh, was almost non-existent. There was a time when Christianity was a curse and it was a controversy and it was a danger and suffering was real and persecution was a way of life and it was dark and it was ugly and it was dangerous and it was real. And Paul wrote a letter to the church at Rome and the church at Rome was right in the middle of this wicked place and it was right in the middle of this wicked time and he wrote this letter and he gave him the deepest and most profound description of the gospel that we had. And he started out by talking about in Romans 1. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of men, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then he laid that out for us. But when you get to Romans 8, this wonderful chapter, there's hidden there, not hidden, but there's, there's this promise there for us. And there's this truth there for us that if we can get our heads around it, then we can, we can go forward no matter what. And so I want to read this, pa- this little passage to you. And I'm jumping in the middle of context. I understand uh, man, we could spend ages on Romans 8, but let me just read three verses and then we're going to walk our way through them, hopefully fairly quickly, and, and then I want to challenge you. Uh, I'm just going to give you some things about the text. We're just really just about four things, we're, four or five things we're going to walk through, and, and then I'm going to leave you with, I hope, a challenge for you and me uh, for these exciting days in which we live. Romans, you know the passage, Romans 8 beginning verse 28. And we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. In those whom he called, he also justified. In those whom he justified, he also glorified. Shall we pray together? Father, in the words we just read is this tremendous, profound, amazing promise that you have given to those of us who are followers of Jesus. And Father, I pray as we unpack that the next few minutes that you would speak right out of your word and you would speak right into our hearts. And God, you would speak into the angst that some of us have. God, that you would uh, speak into the fear that some of us have. Father, that you would speak into the frustration that some of us have. Father, you would speak into the, to the disgust that we have of where we are as a nation. And God, you would remind us, you're not surprised. You're seated on your throne. And you're orchestrating a plan that is going to ultimately result in Jesus Christ coming for his church and taking us to be with him for eternity. And so God, I pray that you would speak uh, with with clarity and with boldness to us this morning. And God, that you'd have your way in our hearts and in our lives. And we'll be careful, Father, to to point people and to ascribe all the glory 
to Jesus, for he and he alone is worthy. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Well, this may be one of, probably one of the more misunderstood, misquoted, and sometimes misapplied uh, passages in the Bible. You can't, and people do this, but you can't just go to any Tom, Dick, and Harry and say, hey, God is going to turn all this into good. You know, because the tendency is when something bad happens to somebody, we just want to, we just want to go, oh, God's going to turn this into good. The problem is that's not what the text says. The other problem is God may not have a promise for the person we're talking to. This is a very specific promise, but it's a promise to a very specific audience. It doesn't say that God's going to make everything good because some things are not good, and we'll talk about that in a few moments. But it does promise a grand and glorious destiny, but it's not a universal promise of grand and glorious destiny. It's a promised destiny to those who love God. In light of all that's going on around us and in light of all that is uh, that, that might be in front of us, we need to wrap our minds and we need to wrap our hearts around this promised destiny for the followers of Jesus. Because think about it. While, while Paul was writing this, man, he was, he was suffering. I mean, look up in verse 18 of chapter 8. Listen to what it says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what are those sufferings? Now, this verse isn't coming up on your screen, but I want you to listen to kind of what Paul was facing. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 3. Keep in mind, he says, now, this, the, the, the sufferings that we are facing, here's what they were. Listen, verse 23, 2 Corinthians 11, he says... He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments. How many of you have had an imprisonment? Anybody been imprisoned for the gospel? Paul says, I have far more imprisonments than all those, he called them super apostles, but far more imprisonments with countless beatings. Countless beatings. None of us probably have experienced a beating, at least not for the sake of the gospel. Now, we probably got some early on in life. We thought they were beatings. They really weren't. But anyway, that's another story, another sermon. But he goes on. He says, often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Can you imagine five times scourged? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift in the sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, in light of that, he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present world or this present time, they are not worth comparing to the promise that I have in Jesus. And so, 
what I want us to know. If you've been adopted as a son into the family of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're not, we have a destiny, a promised destiny for now, yeah, but for then, absolutely. And so what is that promise? Well, look with me at verse 28. We're going to just kind of work our way through this verse. We're just going to take a phrase at a time. I'm going to give you a little thought on it. And then again, I'm going to challenge you with a couple things at the end. First of all, he says, verse 28, he says, and we know, and we know, not we hope, not we think, not we might, but we know. There is a certainty of promise. It's kind of interesting, and we didn't look at this, but it's kind of interesting if you look up in verse 26, uh, because Paul says, you know, in, in light of all this, he says, we don't know what to pray for, so we need the Holy Spirit to help us. We don't know what to pray for, but we know what the promise is. And there is a certainty regarding this promise. And when you look at this, this word, I mean, it, it, the, the verb tense, and, and we've talked about this before, but this verb is in the perfect tense. And it means that knowledge happened back here. And it really, it happened at the moment of conversion. And because it's a perfect tense verb, it means that, that what happened then has ongoing uh, meaning really forever is complete. And so what Paul's saying is the knowledge is complete. The, the, the knowledge of the promise is complete. We know. Now, in, in, the, in the Greek language, there are two words for know. The gnosko we often see as, as, as the word. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, to know by experience, if you will. But, but this word in the original, it's, the word is oida. I know that really stirs your heart to know it's, it's oida or ido. But it means absolute positive knowledge from one state of being. So think with me. An absolute positive knowledge which comes from one state of being. Knowledge without a doubt. In other words, when you become a follower of Jesus, then you have this knowledge. You can know that God has promised for you a destiny of good. A destiny of being called, of being justified, of being glorified. It is a promised future that we have. And, and so, so as a, as a, as a follower of Jesus, man, man, that, that, that promised destiny, this, this destiny of good, man, man, it is, it is a certainty. You know, the old saying is there's only two things certain in life, death and taxes. Right? You, you remember that? I, death's not a certainty. It's a great probability, but he, he could, I mean, he could come and snatch us out, right? I mean, he, he could come. And your taxes, they're pretty certain. I'll give you that. You know, they're, they're pretty much. But, but, but here, the greatest certainty is that God's going to cause everything in your life as a follower of Jesus. He's going to cause everything to work to good because we're called. And we're called according to his prayer. So there's the certainty of the promise. Then secondly, let's look at the subjects of the promise. Look, look back at verse 28. He says, and we know, and, and, we, and we know for those who love God. So who's the promise for? 
is it, is it for everyone? Can everybody just claim? Can everybody just say, hey, I just, hey, God calls all things work out for good. You know, your team fumbles on going in for the touchdown and they're, they're eight points behind. Well, God calls all things to turn. Listen, that doesn't apply unless you're, unless you love God, unless you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That doesn't apply to you. And God, God is not committed to causing all things to turn out for good to those who do not love Him. In fact, if you do not love Him and if you do not follow Him, the, the things that are going on in your life, they're not going to turn out for good because you're under the wrath of a holy God. You know, remember what Jesus says. Jesus said, I didn't come in the world to condemn the world. The world's condemned already. But to the follower, to the believer, man, there's a promise. Now, the question is, do you love God? Do I love God? Maybe another question, well, how do I know? Because a lot of people, I mean, 80-odd percent of Americans say they're Christian. Or maybe it's 75 now, but but again, 75%. Do 75% of Americans love God? Maybe the better question is, here's what Jesus said, if you love me, what will you do? If you love, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Can I just ask you, do do three out of four of Americans keep his commandments? This hurts right here, but do three out of four of us keep his commandments? But the promise... Is a, I mean, this promise that is an amazing thing. God, God, God said, listen, I, 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 whatever happens, I'm causing it to turn out for good. But it's only for those who love him. It's only for those who have decided to follow Jesus. So that is, so we've talked about there's a certainty to this promise. There's a, there's a subject. But let, let's kind of read on. Let's look at the, the source, if you will. Because he says there, and we know that for those who love God. And so for those who love God, this promise sits here. This, this promise exists. And see, here's, here's the thing about a promise. Let's, let's just be honest for a minute. Most of us have had somebody make a promise. And it didn't turn out so well. It may have been as simple as your dad's promise, hey, when I get home from work, we'll go outside and play. Or when I get through reading the paper, we'll go. Or when I get done with this email, or or when I, then I will. It, it may be just that simple as that, that you were promised, and you were promised, and you were promised, and they didn't keep it. Or it could be that you married a husband or you married a wife and you stood together in front of a church or you stood up in a place like this right here and you stood in front of a preacher and you held each other's hands and you looked into one another's eyes and you made this commitment and you pledged your troth in sickness and in health and for better and for worse and for richer or for poorer until death does you part and they didn't die but they departed. And maybe it was because it was the poor, maybe it was because of the sickness, or maybe it was just because of the worst. But for whatever reason, they bailed out on you. And they made a promise and they didn't keep it. And it's hard for us. 
It's hard for us to say, okay, how do I know that promise is good? Or it could be, it could be that we're on the other side. You know, we're the one that made the promise. Baby, I'll play with you when I'm done. And then we get done and something else comes along. And we don't do what we say. Or maybe we're the one that when things got sickness or when things got to the worst part, that we walked out on our spouse. And whatever, for whatever reason, we have this issue. How do we know that God's going to keep his promise? The New American Standard translates the verse this way, and it should come up on the screen. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. You see, the thing of it is, we're not dependent on a, a, a fallible human. It's not a fallible father. It's not a fallible husband. It's not a fallible wife. It, it's not a fallible teacher. It's not a fallible friend. You, that's not who we're dependent on. We're dependent on the God of the universe. And he's made some promises that he will keep. In, in fact, 1 Corinthians one nine. Can we get that one up there? God is faithful by, by whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. Our Lord, and then and then look over uh, at at Second Corinthians chapter one verse twenty. In fact, turn there because I want us to look at verse nineteen, and that's not on the screen. Listen to verse nineteen: For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always. Listen, in Jesus it is always yes for all the promises of God. All the promises of God. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And see, here's the thing. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, uh, verse 23, Even if we become faithless, He remains faithful because he cannot deny us. No, no, because he cannot deny himself. And so the the reason we know the promise is good is because of who made it. God made the promise. And God causes all things. He causes all things to turn out, to work out for good to those who love him. And so there's this source of the promise is God. Now, uh, number, moving on real quickly, we need to look, what, what is the scope of the promise? We'll go back to 828. And we know that's the certainty that for those who love God, that's the subject. God, that's the source. All things work together. All things. So what is the scope of the promise? Everything in our life. If you're a follower of Jesus, your destiny, your destiny, is that God is using and causing everything in your life to work together for good. Now, does that mean that all things are good? No. Does, does that mean that God turns everything into good? No. Is God saying that evil and suffering and tragedy and hardship are good? No. Does it mean that everything will work out if we just have enough faith? No. What it does mean is that God causes all the things, the good, the bad, the indifferent, the ugly. He causes all things to work together. That, that phrase, work together, the Greek word is where we get our word synergy from. It means when you, you, know, when you put things together, uh, someone has said it, 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 
you put it together, you get good. It means the beneficial, profitable, useful stuff. In other words, God will cause everything in our life to become beneficial, useful, and spiritually profitable, even in a world where there's sin and corruption. God just has this, this ability to take what's bad and, and turn it into good. How many of you put salt on your eggs this morning? Or maybe you put salt on your eggs when you cook them. Anybody? Anybody use salt? I use a lot of salt. Did you know, did you know that salt is made up of sodium and, and chlorine or chloride? Did you, you, you knew that, right? And sodium chloride, right? Did you know that, that in and of themselves they can both be toxic? Right? I mean, if you don't think so, pour some bleach on your feet and see what happens. Right? But, 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 when you, but, but when you take two things that are bad, when you put them together the right way, you eat it. Now, that, that doesn't really, it, it makes no sense. It's just that somehow God set this thing up where you put the right amount of sodium and the right amount of chlorine and you get something that you can eat. Well, so the God that can do that, he can take the right amount of stuff in your life and the right amount of stuff in our life and the good and the bad and the indifferent, and he puts it all together and he can turn it into something good. He causes all things. Now, so what are the all things? Well, let me just give you, just real quickly, because our time's short, but, but, but let me just talk about those for a minute. First of all, God, God can take our circumstances. I mean, let's be realistic. Stuff happens. I mean, can I just... Can I get a witness? I mean, would you agree with that? Stuff just happens. I mean, sometimes it's good stuff. Sometimes it's bad. You know, you just, you have a, your tire goes flat. You're, you know, or, or you, you, I mean, stuff just happens. We get into situations, we get in circumstances, and they try our patience, or they, or they test our resolve, or, or maybe they toy with our sanity. God just, he just might put us into some tough spots, some challenging spots, because he wants to grow our character and he wants us to grow up. But, but, but listen, God just takes circumstances and he takes stuff and he works in it. And then there's, there's suffering. We, we read about Paul and none of us, none of us have been beaten, scourged five times. None of us have been beaten with rods three times. None of us have been stoned and left for dead with us for the sake of the gospel. Uh, none of us have struggled, struggled that mightily. And yet at some point in life, most every one of us will go through some type of suffering or some type of difficulty or some type of hardship. You know, it might be a diagnosis. You may get the cancer word. Or you might get other some debilitating disease. Or, or as one of our guys got up and drove to work this week, you might have a heart attack driving to work. You know, it, it could happen. Uh, some go through the pain of a tragic loss, you know, perhaps a miscarriage or two miscarriages or three miscarriages or, or maybe a stillborn or you lose a child or you lose a teenager. There was a, uh, a lady that uh, Lisa went to high school with, was in youth group with, had twin daughters, probably junior or senior high school just a few weeks ago. One of, one of their daughters survived cancer as a child. And they were driving together to work to school just the other day. And it was raining and the driver overcorrected. And one of the daughters stepped out into eternity just like that. Is that good? No, absolutely not. It's absolutely tragic and horrific. And yet God can work even in the, the most difficult things. 
and calls them together. So there's suffering. So there's circumstances and situations and, 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 and sin. Did you, did you know that God can use sin and its consequences to, to cause things to be good? To cause things to turn out to good? Sin is not good. Sin is never, ever good. And yet God can use it to turn out for good. I mean, you go to the scriptures, man. You read about David and Bathsheba. Is what David, is what happened with David and Bathsheba, is it good? Absolutely not. I mean, it was adultery. It was, it was, it was murder. It was deceit. It was all these things. And, and there were consequences. And there was a child that died. And, and there were just major consequences. And, and yet from that relationship of bad, they had another son. You may know him. His name was Solomon. Remember who built God's temple. God said, David, you won't build it, but who? your son will. And we read from Proverbs. He wrote many of those. You read Ecclesiastes. You read the Song of Solomon. And so we see that. So sometimes even our sin, God causes to turn out to good. And, and, but sometimes it's not our sin. Sometimes it's, it's somebody else's sin. I mean, think about Joseph. Man, he, you know, his father sinfully favored him over the other brothers, so he created this tension. And then, of course, Joseph wasn't innocent. He had the dreams, and he had to tell everybody, hey, here's what God's going to do for me. Just want you to know, you're going to bow down. And then he goes to his dad and says, hey, Dad, you too, Dad. You're going to bow down. And, and then they, he goes to, to take them to snacks and, and whatever, and they go, here he comes. And, and so they, they, they kidnap him, and they throw him in a cistern and then they sell him away to slavery he has no control and you think man it's horrible and then he goes down to egypt and he's bought by potiphar and thought well maybe things are finally looking up and then potiphar mrs potiphar comes along and she wants to 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 shack with him and he says no and she's angry and you know the story and so he winds up in jail none of it just for doing right imagine that and then he finally, you know, he helps these guys and interprets their dreams. He says, hey, don't forget about me when the king restores you. And the cupbearer didn't forget. We didn't forget after two years. Two years later, he remembered. And, but, but just think about it. So, so, so all of this stuff, I mean, 15 years probably. Can you imagine you know, we, we have a bad week, and we're like, God, where are you? God, what are you? God, can, do you not understand? Why, can you not see what? It's been a bad week or a bad month. Man, Joseph's probably 30, and he's thinking, God, I'm having a bad life. But, but what does he say to his brothers? You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. So he, listen, listen, here's what I'm saying. God, this sovereign God, this creator of the universe, this uncreated one who exists outside of our universe and yet created our universe, perfectly designed it for us. That God is engaged in your life and he's engaged in my life and everything that happens and everything that's going to happen, he causes it. To turn out for good. That's the scope. All of it. All of it is in the marinade. I mean, it's all there. 
You know, I was thinking about how many, anybody ever baked the cake? How many ever baked the cake? Okay. Yeah. Come on, guys. Y'all fess up. Y'all try. Okay. I, you know, I baked a few cakes. You know, you, well, you think about the ingredients. I mean, the cake can be really, really good. I mean, my nine year old made one the, last weekend and it's just incredible. But I mean, when you look at the ingredients, you got, you got flour. Stick your finger and try that. Salt, baking powder, maybe some baking soda. Raw eggs, any, anyone? No. I mean, you put them in a the milk, you get enough ice cream in there, they're not bad. You know, sugar's good. If you smell the vanilla extract, you're thinking, this is good. When I was a kid, I, I, I loved the smell of vanilla. And so I kind of snuck away one day and thought, I'm going to try some. It smells really good. But... Taste not so much. But when you put it all together, man, you got something. It's good. And I don't know what is going on in your life, and you don't know what's going on in my life, and we don't know what's in front of us, and we don't know what's going to happen, and we don't know what's going to happen socially, and we don't know what's going to happen politically, and we don't know what's going to happen culturally, and we don't know what's going to happen economically. But we can know this. Our God is in heaven. And he causes all things to work out for good. All things. And so whether the right guy or not gets into the present, whether the right party gets control of this or that, whether the right person gets here or there, that's not the issue. The issue is our God. Our God is in control. So, so what do we do? Let's go. Y'all are going to love this. Let's go to Hebrews. I want us to go back there. We spent some time in Hebrews. But, but listen just real quickly, and we got we got to be done. Hebrews 12. Let, let me just read the first three verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, so, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, now listen to this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. See, we don't know what's ahead. But Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that, now here's the purpose, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So here's the thing. We cannot, we cannot grow weary. We cannot be faint of heart because our God is in heaven and he's on the throne. So what shall we do? Three things real quick. Number one, we should pray. You really ought to pray what's going on with our nation. 
we ought to pray with what's going on in our life. I mean, for some of you, you could care less about what's going on in the election. You got a diagnosis or somebody in your family's got a diagnosis or you got an issue going on or there's someone in your family, you got a child that you're not sure about or you got grandkids that you're concerned. And, and so you, you could care, but, but, but whatever it is, you should pray. You should pray. Because God commands us. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Secondly, we should participate. Man, when it comes to the political process, man, we ought to be involved. We better get involved. And we should. We should pray and then we should participate. Man, you should vote. You should engage. You should have conversations. You should get into the process. I, I mean, I'm all for that. I think Scripture's all for that. But our hope, I thought about this this morning. Let me save it. I'll come back to it. We should pray, we should participate, and then number three, we should persevere. Just persevere. Because we got a promise. I mean, did you see what he said? Whatever happens, he's causing it to turn out for good. Because those he, he foreknew, this is a whole other sermon, but he... he those he foreknew, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and what God is doing and everything that he's doing, he's conforming us to the image of Christ. He's shaping us into the image of Christ. Why? Because we've been foreordained, we've been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified. And, and look at that last term. He says, we've been glorified. In other words, in God's mind, we're already made perfect in heaven. And so God's using everything on earth to perfect us and to glorify us. And so what do we do? We, we don't grow weary. We don't get faint of heart. We don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. And so we persevere. We persevere. You know, we sing that hymn. I thought about that. You know, my hope is built on nothing less. And, and you, know what's, you know where some of us as believers have been? My hope is built on nothing less then who survives this political mess? <laughs> right? If we could, you know, if this could just win. But, but the hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I do not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Are you, look at me, are you a follower of Jesus? Because if you are, you're destined for good. If you're not, you ought to give your life to Jesus today. I want to pray for us, and then I'm going to turn you loose for a time of fellowship. If you've never been born again and saved, I'd love to have a conversation with you. Jesus died for you. He's called you. He wants to justify you and declare you righteous before God. And he has a plan for your life. I'd love to chat with you. Let's pray. Father, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and his righteousness. It's not in a political party. It's not in a political candidate. It's not in, you know, a perfect life here and all our troubles to go away. 
No, no, our hope is in a Christ who is engaged in our life, working, causing things to turn out for good so that we are conformed into the likeness of our Savior so that when He appears, we shall be like Him. And so God, may you encourage us. May we be people of courage and encouragement. May we be people of hope And may we not, and and I've been guilty of this, may I not be negative and a naysayer, but may I be positive because my, my king is enthroned over the universe. And so God, give us hope. Remind us that we're destined for good. In Jesus' name. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen.